Today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show, I'm going to give an update on where the City of Arches stands. This is the city source book that I've been working on on Patreon and that I hope to put together into a product for everybody. We're going to talk about where that currently stands and show it off. We're going to talk about the unfortunate passing away of Janelle J. Quays, a industry luminary in our whole hobby here and some of the impacts that she has had. One of the topics of today's show is going to be not throwing away 5e because you're mad at Hasbro. And we're going to take a look at Weapons of Legend, a new product, a new 5e product published by Jeff Stevens. I'm going to talk about my actual play use of the luck system from Black Flag and Tales of the Valiant for 5e. And we're going to cover our first batch of questions from January 2024 from the Patreon Q&A. All today on the Lazy RPG Talk Show. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk about all things in tabletop role-playing games. This show, like all of the work of Sly Flourish, is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of awesome stuff, a dedicated Discord server, the monthly Q&A, City of Arches sourcebook, a bunch of tools to help you run your games, a bunch of exclusive adventures, and a whole lot more. It's a really good deal to sign up. And I'm going to talk about one of the big projects that I've been working on for the last two years on Patreon, on Patreon that patrons have had access to, patrons have been using call the City of Arches. We're going to dive into that a little bit today. To the patrons of Sly Flourish, thank you so much for your outstanding support. So what is the City of Arches? The City of Arches is a high fantasy 5e city source book for lazy dungeon masters. I have been working on this for about two years now in small bits, kind of over a long period of time. So instead of focusing on writing like one big book all at once, like I've done with other things, like, like I did with Ruins of the Grander Root, this one has been a slow burn, putting out pieces, a couple pages at a time. Some of the earliest City of Arches stuff was just a few pages and then just a few pages more and just a few pages more, but it's been growing and growing and growing. It is now the current release on Patreon is 115 pages. The current version that I'm working on, the current draft is 121 pages, which is probably about as big as it's going to get. We're getting close to the point where I, I like this source book the way it is enough that I don't plan on adding a whole lot of new material. It is a 120 page city source book based on a poem. The whole premise of this is based on a poem from Percy Shelley called Ozymandias that I absolutely love. So it's the first poem that's in the beginning of this. It's a very, very famous poem. You'll have, you'll have heard it. And the whole idea is an entity that has created a massive empire based on hubris, whose whole essence was flushed away from society, like flushed away from all memory and all record by from them being cursed by the armies that defeated them. And then the city that is left there, this city of arches that is left there. The city itself has all of these kind of unstable archways that connect to other worlds. And on an occasion, somebody will step through the archway from the other from from the other side come here with no memories and all of their memories kind of wiped out they are greeted to the city they are given a fine basket full of fresh breads and cheeses and a, and a bath towel and said go bathe at the public baths you'll feel better and then you can enjoy your life here in the city or elsewhere so the city the city covers the city itself which has many many layers to it physical layers to it it's got lots of different locations and i like to think of each of these major locations as a biome i'm kind of using the minecraft style biome that you have all of these different places and I added in the most recent version added three new biomes so there's hundreds and hundreds of adventure locations in here hundreds of like 
short two or three paragraph places where you can build whole adventures or even small campaigns just around those little batches. And then of course you can build much larger campaigns around the whole, the role, the, the whole area. So some of the and, and examples of some of these locations are you have the city, the upper city itself, the lower reaches, which is sort of the seedier underbelly of the city where people do kind of nefarious things. It's still relatively safe and relatively lawful, but it's definitely where like your bandits hang out. You're a lot more likely to get mugged on the streets. It's where you fence stolen goods. It's all that kind of thing. You have the Cliffs of the Dead, which is this massive set of tombs that has existed for thousands of years that are actually the tombs themselves are sort of drawn deeper into the mountain. It's known that the the border between the realm of the living and the realm of the dead is thin in there. Not necessarily in a bad way, but like that's where people inter their loved ones. But then the tombs themselves get drawn deeper in the mountains, which means the further in the mountain you go, the older the tombs get. The Endless Warrens, which is sort of the natural caves and all of the monstrous layers that exist deeper in the mountain beyond the beyond the, the the cliffs of the dead the tombs and and you can tell that i've like jumped around to different sections i have a section of villains and monsters i have a section of the worlds beyond the arches like other worlds that are there one particular world called arcus the world of dead temples a world generator so you can build your own worlds that either are used as lore or actual places that the characters could visit then another biome called sunken revia which is really a terrible ruined city filled with dark magic and demons and warring factions it is not safe at all it's your high level zone deep deep beneath the city the vaults of the nameless king is your dare zone these are like level 17 to 20 places that you would go super super dangerous super powerful places these are the private vaults of the nameless king himself that have not been opened in, in more than a thousand years uh, a whole section called the borderlands which are the regions around the city including uh the a marshland to the north uh a ruined arcane desert to the west and a temperate sort of hilly grassland farmer area to the south, and then a bunch of adventure locations that exist there. So the, the the new things that I added, the big big things that I've added to the City of Arches in its last set of updates include an expanded section on using the City of Arches. So I want to say like, well, how do you use this book? How do you make the most out of any game? I expanded that a lot. I created a history of the City of Arches. So you can see like what happened what happened to the city over time or to that area over time? It goes back hundreds of thousands of years, but it's a brief history. It's not this giant thing. It's, you know, maybe five major events that are worth considering more GM tip sections. This is really why it's a city source book built for lazy DMS is in there. I have lots of advice about how to use the material to make your life easy while you're running your games. It's spread all throughout. So I added a whole bunch of these to the whole thing, new locations, summaries, secrets, and clues, and random encounters for every biome. So any one of those major sections has a section of secrets and clues. It has very brief summaries at the top, italicized summaries that you could read directly to your players or that you could use to in, in, inspire yourself and random encounters that you might run into in each of those biomes there's a, a random encounter section for the city it was only 10 now it's 20 the new cliffs of the dead biome is a whole new section that i added a new endless warren section i added and the vaults of the nameless king i added so all of those a major major update that happened in december I, i've been dropping updates big updates like this about every two or three months i expect to have one more major update probably in february and that instead of adding new sections to it, because I feel like it's at a good place now where I want it to be. I, I feel like I don't I don't need to keep adding more locations. It does already have some kind of adventures, but this isn't a big adventure book. I'm not planning on doing like a one to 20 campaign adventure. I really want GMs to use this to inspire their own adventures. So I, I, there may be some things that I add to it. 
but I don't think it's going to be very much. And instead, what I'm doing is because it's been written over two years, I have lots of connection points that I have to reconnect. Lots of like collisions of names. I was using the same name for multiple things and I have to fix that. I want to make sure that like, you know, there's more opportunity to see something that moved, you know, from one place to another. So I've been going through the whole thing. I'm, I think I'm about 70 or 80 pages through my rewrite and I've got about 40 ish pages to go which I expect to finish in January. And at that point, it's going to be pretty solid. I'm going to do another cut of it, which I'm going to put out to patrons on Sly Flourish. And uh, then I'm going to be turning it over to my partner, Scott Gray, my editor and partner, Scott Gray. And he's going to start digging into it and doing a great big edit run. And this is all leading up to sometime this year, launching a Kickstarter for the fully published version of the City of Arches in an actual full color hardback book that you can use to run your game. So I'm very excited about this. I, I, this has been a real fun project to work on. I'm also going to be moving my own games to run in the City of Arches, so I'll be using it myself. And other... Uh, already people have been running their own adventures, their own campaigns, including organized play campaigns built on the city of arches, which is, you know, makes my heart swell. And I'm, I'm, I'm both terrified and, and very proud, uh, that we feel like this material is good enough for people to be able to run their game. So I'm very excited about that. And that means that play testing has been going on while this has all been happening. I've been getting feedback from patrons. Uh, people have been running it. I've been running it and we've been seeing where this is going and running back. And it's really, I think it's a much stronger product because of that, the way that it's been going out there. So if you want to see the City of Arches and see the latest version of it, you can join the Patreon and get immediate access to the 115-page PDF of the City of Arches for a very low amount of money. And you can get the new final version of it, probably the final, I don't know if it'd be the final, probably, I don't know, we'll see. You never say final, but like the, 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 you know, the, the most solid version of it is probably coming out in February where everything has been kind of reconnected and going, but you can watch the growth of it and you can use it right now. There's lots of really cool, lots of really cool stuff in it. So that is the current status of the city of arches, which I wanted to share. I did mention in my intro that the industry luminary Janelle J. Quays has passed away. Janelle had done tons of tons of different uh, a major, major influence on the TTRPG industry with some very early adventures in the earliest days of D&D and in other kind of organized play programs and things like that. I learned about Janelle Jayquays through Justin Alexander, who talked a lot about Janelle's dungeon designs, the asymmetric dungeon designs that Janelle was known for and had done in the video game world as well. Uh, she didn't just operate in the TTRPG industry, but also in the video game world as well. Uh, she unfortunately passed away this past week on Wednesday after uh, battling battling health condition, battling very you know very rough health conditions over the, the past few weeks. And it's very sad. Janelle's partner has a GoFundMe page up that you can donate to to help out. Janelle was in the hospital for quite a long time. Those kind of expenses are just brutal to deal with. Again, welcome to the American healthcare industry. Anything that you can do to offer support to her family would 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 definitely be would definitely be helpful. Gnome Stew had a really good Jared Rashner of Gnome Stew wrote a really nice article talking about Janelle's the legacy of Janelle J. Quay and how they became aware of Janelle and the kind of impact that they had. I will link to that article. I thought it was a really, really good article. And I will link to that article in the show notes so you can you can take a look at that. But that was very sad news for everybody in the industry. We've been talking about it and hearing about it quite, quite a bit. And everybody's been uh, very sad to hear of that. So today's topic that I wanted to talk about came to me because it's something that I've actually been dealing with. I don't, none of us, I don't think 
have a firm hand on exactly what the whole TTRPG industry is like and what's really going on. We're probably more aware of it than we were, say, 20 or 30 years ago when there wasn't any kind of connections to social media and there was no ability for us to sort of see what's going on. However, we do get kind of caught up in different pockets of the industry, different people. We will hear from different people for different reasons, depending on the context that we go to. You go to one forum and you get one group of people. You go to another forum, you get another group of people. One of the reasons why I very much like the Reddit DM Academy was that it seemed like a lot of new DMs and GMs were going there to get advice on things. It wasn't just people who had been in the, in the hobby for a long time. I don't go to Reddit anymore, but back when I did, I found that to be a really useful thing. And, but, but I do hear often a lot when I'm talking about kind of the business of D&D, the business of 5e and what's going on. I definitely hear this in comments on YouTube and I've talked to some people personally where this has been the case. And that's why I wanted to bring up this topic. And that topic is, you know, really a statement, which is don't throw away 5e because you're mad at Hasbro. And really when I, when I bring this up, there's, it's important for me to kind of split this up into three kind of groups of people and talk about how I'm focusing on one group in particular. But I think most people fall into the other two groups. So if you're in the other two groups, you don't need to tell me that you're in those two groups. I'm with you on, the, on these groups. I support you in both of these groups. I don't need to hear about it though, because that's not who we're talking to. So the three groups are group number one, you're happy with D&D. You like it. You don't really get involved in all the politics that are going on with D&D or all the business stuff that's going on with D&D. You're not into the, the current D&D news zeitgeist. You just have your player's handbook. You have your game. You get together with your friends every week and you play D&D and you're happy with it. You don't care what's going on with Hasbro. You're just buying books. It's not a huge, you know, you're not, it's not this giant support thing. And I'm on your side. D&D is great. I love D&D. And, you know, buying your books and sitting there and playing with your friends is important and you don't need to get caught up in everything else and you can just enjoy the game. That's not who I'm talking to. The one thing I will offer to that group, though, is there's lots and lots of other products that you could be using alongside your your Hasbro Wizards of the Coast published D&D books that will make your game better. And that's what I promote a lot on the show. The other group are people who don't like 5e. You're not into the 5e system. You don't like how it runs. That sort of heroic version of fantasy RPG isn't what you want. You like either like old school style or you like more tactical crunchy side. There's or you like more story focused stuff. So like, you know, and again, I'm, I'm making false separations of game type. But let's say you're like, I don't like 5e because it really kind of like sticks you into one role and you're stuck with that role. And there's really every fighter is like every other fighter. I don't really agree, but let's say you are. And then you like Pathfinder 2. Awesome. Right. I'm totally happy that you like Pathfinder 2 and the massive amount of customer customer, the massive amount of character customization you can do in Pathfinder 2. And you like the super tactical crunchy bit of Pathfinder 2. Awesome. Right. Great. Not not that's not the topic of this, of this discussion. Or you like really story focused games. You like your monster of the week. You like your thirsty sword lesbians. You like your dungeon world. You like games where you're focused more on the story of the of the, what's going on. Collaborative storytelling with your players. You don't need all the crunchiness that 5e has. I'm on your side as well. Oh, let's say you like the old school style. You want it where, you know, torches matter, food matters, encumbrance matters. Everything is very deadly. And you love your shadow dark RPG. You love your old school essentials and you love your knave i'm good with you too right that's a fine way to enjoy your rpg i'm not talking about you either so those two different groups a you love D and you really don't you, you know you don't need to get involved in hasbro's nonsense totally fine or i have all these other rpgs that i'm enjoying instead totally fine instead there is a slender slice kind of in there 
of people who are upset with what's been going on with Hasbro and lots of different things ever since the OGL, maybe even before the OGL, some things bugged it, but then the Pinkertons, the whole AI art stuff that's been going on. Lots of different reasons why Watsy has lost your trust. Some of those I think are totally valid. Some of those I don't necessarily think are valid, but I'm not going to get into that now. It doesn't matter how I feel about it. It matters how you feel about it. And if you feel like you are unhappy with what Hasbro has been doing, the, 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 the layoffs that occurred right at the end of the year, all this stuff is making you mad at Hasbro and you feel like that means you have to walk away, not just from D and D, but five E overall. What I argue to you is that five E isn't D and D and you can enjoy five E a lot and not have to support Hasbro or not have to use D and D products. If you want to, I still feel like if you do want to keep using D and D products, that's totally cool. Or if you'd rather play our other RPGs, that's totally cool too. But if instead you feel like, your focus of 5e has to you have to leave 5e because of what hasbro's been doing or or you're afraid of what they're going to do you're not crazy about 2024 you don't know what kind of other things they're going to be doing the big focus on digital play that they have monet you know further monetization of DD, and you don't want to be part of all that there's so many ways to enjoy 5e and not be part of that two examples that i'll give are, are two obvious ones one level up advanced 5e so a lot of people have brought up to me hey 5e is DD. Like, I don't know whether you like it or not, 5e is D&D. And then I said, well, is Level Up Advanced 5e D&D? And like, well, no. And I'm like, and it's its own system, right? It's completely independent. It's got its own adventurer's guide. It's got its own Monsters Menagerie. And it's got its own Trials and Treasure. It's got its own core books. Tales of the Valiant, which is coming out pretty soon, I think. I don't know exactly when it's coming out. It has its own player's guide. It has its own Monster Vault. And it's going to have its own GM guide. Those are completely separate from, from D&D. There is no license connection to, to Wizards of the Coast. They have no financial connection. There is nothing Hasbro or Wizards can do to get in the way of them building what they've been doing. EN World has now been doing it for like three years. They've been, they put out all their core books. They put out a bunch of supplements. They put out digital tools. They've been supporting it. EN World went so far as to go through all of their material and make sure there wasn't any connection at all to the intellectual property of Wizards of the Coast and generated their own system reference document under a Creative Commons and uh, a Creative Commons license. It's also under ORC and it's also under the OGL, but I like the Creative Commons, so I focus on that. That is independent. It doesn't even reference the Creative Commons license that Wizards of the Coast put out. It's its own license, completely independent of every way and yet fully compatible with 5e. And what that means is fully compatible with all of the other 5e books that have ever been published over the past 10 years whether they're published by wizards of the coast or every other publisher flea mortals and cobalt press and their stuff monty cook games and their stuff ton jeff stevens and his stuff even tier games and their stuff me and my stuff lots of people have been publishing stuff all over the place that is compatible with all that stuff and 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 doesn't have any connection to hasbro so I posted this up on EN World. I, I, I got my thoughts together on it. I wrote a piece and I, and I threw it up on EN World's forums because it's a good place for me to test an idea. Let me throw this out there and let me hear what people have to say about it and let me get around. And it's huge now. I don't know how many responses it has. 300 replies or whatever. There's a you know, fair bit of people talking back and forth about it. And... A lot of people fell into those categories where like they either came in and said, I don't know why you're talking about this. I'm totally fine with D&D. And I'm like, good on you. Or I don't know why you're talking about this. There's so many other RPGs. Why don't we just play those? Also, I'm on you. That's not who I'm talking to. I'm not talking to, you know, those are two groups, but there is this other group. And then they were like, well, is there really anybody there? And I'm like, well, I'm talking to them. I've spoken to them. They've talked to me. 
I've, I've heard from them. So yes, I know there's some out there. Do I know it's huge? No, I don't know that it's huge. I don't know how big a problem this is. I have no idea. But was it worth me writing an article on or writing a post on Ian World to say something? Maybe. Is it worth me talking about here on the show? I hope so. I mean, I don't hope so in this hope that there is a problem here. If there isn't a problem here, there isn't a problem. But I have a feeling there are people out there who are still kind of drawing this connection that 5e is D&D. And that therefore they're taking 5e regardless of how good it is or how much they like it or don't like it. And they're, they're tossing aside saying, I have to completely go independent. Now, one of the arguments is, well, D&D is so big. It's as though it is 5e, right? That if you were to take like all of the sales of everything and put them in a big bubble, that so much of like the, the, the sales and the player usage and everything, the volume of stuff from Hasbro, from Wizards of the Coast and from D&D is so big compared to the other tiny little slice in that circle of other 5e published stuff that you might as well just say D&D is 5e. My argument is size doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how big it is. First of all, if you're listening to me, you're watching me, you read my stuff, you're already well outside of that big envelope because most of the people in there are not involved in any of the stuff that's going on with d They're not listening to a D&D talk show where we pontificate this stuff. They're not looking at other third-party material. They're already doing their own thing. So, so much of them are outside of the sphere of the people that I'm reaching anyway. Why am I even worrying about them? That's not, I can't worry about them, right? They're, I can't reach them. So if I can't reach them, I can't do anything. But then there are people I can reach. And the people I can reach are the people who know that there's other third-party products. These are the people who backed Flea Mortals. These are the people who uh, buy lots of 5e accessories or, or look at them anyway. The people who know that Raging Swan makes awesome stuff. And they recognize uh, the value in this in this work. So those are people I can reach. So the, to me, the volume, I mean, it, it isn't important. And if you're basing all of your opinions, like the thing that I that I that I I saw in some of the responses was, five D and D is so big that there's no point in yelling into the sky saying that five E isn't D and D because you're never going to reach those people. And my answer is, well, I reached you. Like you came here, you read what I said, and you posted a note. So how do you feel about it? I don't need to figure out how everyone else in the world feels about it. I don't need to worry about the people who aren't reading the stuff that I've got. I want to worry about the people who are. And those are the people that I want to talk to because those I actually know are there. I don't know anybody else. I, don't, I can't reach the amorphous blob of people who are out there and they're enjoying D&D and I'm happy they are. And I want more people to enjoy D&D. And I want Hasbro to market D&D so heavily that more people are coming into that pool because the bigger that pool gets, and it can continue a bit, the more some of them will say, you know what, I'll, I will do a Google search on what are some other accessories or how do I deal with encounter balance or what exactly does, how does stealth work? And that they can start to come in and see that there's a bigger hobby here and that there is more stuff. And the, the cul-de-sac for that hobby isn't go to another RPG. It could be, no, keep playing 5e. Just try out this other monster book or try this other way of playing 5e or try this other trick. And those are the people that I want to reach. I mean, I still love other RPGs. You see, my, I just did a whole show about my Shadowdark RPG. I love all RPGs, including D&D. I love them all. I think that the whole hobby is really, really good. But when it comes to like this, it doesn't matter how big D&D is to me. And I'm not going to focus my energy around how big it is because the only reason, the only way that that size matters to me is by new people coming into the hobby overall, more people getting involved in the hobby and thus some small percentage of those people coming in and 
you know, listening to some of the stuff I have and hopefully picking up a tip or two about how they can run their games. So I'm not worried about size, but instead what I am worried about are the people that are in that small slice who are saying, I really like the AI thing that happened recently. So, you know, Wizards of the Coast kind of stepped in it because it turned out that one of the people that they had used for marketing for Magic the Gathering had used the autofill tools from photoshop and it ai generated some background stuff they were called out on it they denied it they denied it and then they said oh no turns out we were wrong and it turns out that even though we told our artists not to use ai we hadn't done that with our marketing group yeah and a bunch of people are like wow i'm done like you you did that with big b's and you came up with a bunch of excuses why you had ai art there and then you did now you've done this and you had to walk, walk back and it doesn't matter how i feel about that really we each get to decide how we feel about that 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 to me like you know i'm still gonna buy i'm gonna buy books when they're good books. And I, that didn't matter that much to me. I didn't feel like that was this huge breach of trust. I know the AI thing is a massive, massive issue. This isn't the equivalent of Hasbro saying we're replacing all of our artists with AI art, which is what everybody's kind of jumping to. Oh, they're just going to go that way. They're really not. I do, I'd seriously doubt it because honestly, their amount of investment in art, A, the art, somebody, uh, a friend of mine brought this up. It was a really good point, which is Art is their business. Like art is so core to them that they, and they want to copyright. <laughs> like they don't want to put, they're not going to commoditize the key. They'll commoditize lots of other things. They're probably not going to commoditize that because it's really important. Not just from like a PR standpoint of it looks really bad when we use AI art, but because they really care about the art that they're putting in because the art is such a big part of their product. So, and honestly, it's expense compared to a lot of other expenses that are going on is relatively low, even when you're, hiring human artists to do it it's just not that much of a cost savings for them to do that these are contract contract commercial or contract artists that they're using the cost isn't that high compared to their overall thing so i don't think that that's the case they keep stepping in it and they're because they're a big slow corporation they're having trouble keeping up with the fact that these things are moving along like hey we should check with our marketing team and make sure that the people we are hiring to do marketing for us aren't using ar but regardless if you're mad at them over that that's fine. You can be mad. You're, you're allowed to, to, to want. And if you don't trust them, and I don't because we saw what they did and we didn't, I don't think I've seen anything that says that they've rebuilt that trust when it came to things like the OGL. That's fine. And th by not trusting them, it means like, am I not going to buy their books? No, I, I did. I've, been, I've bought their books since then. So I'm just, I want to see them as another 5e publisher. And that's really what I'm saying. Regardless of their size, they're another 5e publisher of many, and there are many 5e publishers. And when you have these books in front of you, you get to pick which ones you want to use. And the quality of those individual books are really, really good. All of them are really, many of them are really, really good. I have definitely seen some products uh, that wizards could not do at the scale that they do it. And I've definitely seen some products that are, that are higher quality in almost every way. So when it matters to the books that are sitting in front of you, it doesn't matter that much. And my point is, so if you're mad at Hasbro, that's fine. Be mad at Hasbro, but don't throw 5e out because of that. Don't either think that people who are still investing their energy in 5e are bad people because they're supporting Hasbro because they're not. And don't feel like you have to stop using 5e because 5e isn't D&D. &D. 5e isn't Hasbro. 5e is its own thing. Level Up Advanced 5e is its own independent first-party role-playing game. Tales of the Valiant is its own independent first-party role-playing game. These are not third-party products. They are not supplements of D&D. They are their own thing, regardless of the fact that they are significantly smaller in market share than the big player on the board. So that's kind of what I want to say. And again, if you don't, don't like 5e, 
that's totally fine. You don't have to email me and say, I'm so glad I'm not involved because in I don't even like 5e. I get that a lot. And that's fine. There's lots of great RPGs. And I love RPGs. You also need to tell me, I don't want to hear about anything, you know, Wizards is doing what Wizards are going to do. I'm going to keep supporting their books on Indie Brand. That's fine too. I'm totally good with that. To me, the narrow slice of the people who loved 5e and feel like they can't play it anymore because they feel like it's too associated with Hasbro, break that association because that association is in fact broken. And if you want a practical thing you can do, the practical thing would be, in my opinion, and take a look at level up advanced 5e because it's really really good an example of an awesome 5e product that you can use in any of your 5e games whether it is 2014 D, or whether it is level up advanced 5e or whatever you're using an example that is weapons of legend by jeff stevens weapons of legend is a small 70 page pdf you can get on drive through rpg I, I think he kickstarted this i can't remember if he did a kickstarter for this or if it was just a uh, direct product uh, you can find a link for this product in the show notes it is a 15 dollars pdf that you can get on drive through rpg beautiful artwork in the in the book there is it includes i think 43 weapons of legacy which are weapons that evolve depending on things that are going on in the game and we're going to take a look at a few of them but the general idea is you have like weapons that have a history background quests that they go on or that you go on to make the weapon grow and ways that the weapon grows we've seen a little bit of this in that that wizards of the coast has published in their books we've seen larger amounts of these in other products that other people have produced this idea of weapons that get better over time really neat idea i haven't used a a lot of them in my own game sometimes i'll have a weapon evolve once but it's one of those things where it's like it's already hard enough for me to keep track of the characters much less keep track of their individual magic items and how those are growing in a quest but you could do it from time to time and it sounds cool and a book like this actually helps you kind of keep track of them and use them so each one it, there's a whole like section in the introduction here on how they work where you can buy them pricing selling buying all kinds of things there the general level limits on how they would increase over time you know, like this whole like rarity and level equivalence table. That's really cool. You know, recommendation by design. They're not always there. Some of them are, some of them are, some of them are, are, you know, more powerful than others. And then these weapons of legacy, and they have like one page each for the weapons of legacy or the, these, these legendary weapons that include things like what's the legend, where might they find it? What are some encounter ideas that can tie to it? What kind of progression does it have? How does its statistics increase depending on what you've got? Adders of Embrace, for example, is like a poisonous halberd you know a poisonous pike that gets stronger as you go Amy's is amy's trophy right a kind of cool little legendary duelist duelist dagger they all have artwork for them i don't know if every weapon in here has artwork for them but all of the legendary ones do the beast like here's a big maul it's like a big beast head really really neat and so if you're looking for magic items that have teeth to them like the beast that grow over time things that they have a legend and you want to build like a quest around it you could do far worse than to pick up the weapons of legend pdf browse through it while you're thinking about the treasure that you want to drop into your game maybe you jot some of these down as things that you're not necessarily going to drop into your game right away but maybe these are items that you could keep in the back of your mind kind of put them in a little list with your notes and to decide when you want to drop in things like the bloodcaster i really do think magic items are probably undervalued by GMs as valuable pieces of our prep and valuable pieces of our games overall. Characters love magic items. And if you do just drop in like a plus one sword, that's really kind of boring. 
every magic item that you put in there can have like an interesting name, an interesting bit of history, maybe an interesting function that it has. If you've played Baldur's Gate 3, you see a lot of this. Like, you know, 80, 90% of the items that you get in Baldur's Gate 3 are unique items that do one thing. They have like spells that are attached to them. Or they give some other bonus to a particular kind of effect that a character might have. That's really a neat idea from Baldur's Gate 3 that you can drop in is like you could give like a, a set of earrings that make the Firebolt spell use your intelligence modifier on damage right that's like a cool thing you could do so that one cantrip gets better and then maybe they use those maybe they they're like oh yeah i, I might use them but you could kind of say like what do i see my characters what the characters using maybe there's something just augment the thing that they're using a little bit they will really like that idea so i think that they're undervalued overall and a book like this is a way to get like a good bit of crunch these are actually put together by a bunch of different designers a bunch of different designers that have been in the rpg in the 5e design world for some time now so they, they've got some really, really cool designs to them. Again, this is Weapons of Legend for 5e is the name of this. The Dance, look at this. This is like a cool blade that's got like skeletons and stuff on it. Now, the other neat thing is at the back of it, I haven't looked at sort of the non, when in my flip through, I didn't really dig into the items that were not uh, uh, legacy items. So the, you, know, you can see there's some back here. They're just pretty typical magic items that that you might have with some some cool art but one thing that's pretty neat is in the back of the pdf are printable cards you could print these out on a color printer and slice them out and hand people a picture of what the item looks like so really handy way to like show it if also if you're playing online about half the people from my from my surveys are playing online you can do a snapshot of the card and just drop that into your discord server or whatever you're using in order to share your game so really really cool product you know this is the exact kind of thing i'm talking about when i talk about the value that small publisher small publishers can have in this larger 5e ecosystem these are compatible with level up advanced 5e they're compatible with DD. they're compatible with probably both 2014 and 2024 DD, and they're compatible with all the variants of 5e that that are are, are out there and probably will be out there because i don't think you're going to see a lot of stuff change so much that items like these are not useful and that's because each one of these is its own tiny little rule set right every every magic item has its own kind of tiny set of rules so really 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 neat stuff so yes this is weapons of legend by jeff stevens available on uh drive through rpg 15 pdf really really cool looking stuff please check it out for about a year now we have seen new rule sets coming out from kobold press for their upcoming tales of the valiant role-playing game they ran a kickstarter last year for the player's guide and for the monster vault for for, for tales of the valiant they have a new gm guide that's coming out i've had in full disclosure i have worked with kobold press on both their monster book and on the and on the gm guide so i'm not exactly unbiased when it comes to my enjoyment of things Cobalt Press. But I have loved Cobalt Press longer than I have been doing some freelance work for Cobalt Press. I really like the work that they do. I enjoy the books that they put out. I have run many of their adventures. I've run many of the books. And I'm very excited to see Tales of the Valiant come out. I'm, I'm excited to see what's got. But we've been seeing some of their design coming out, both in playtest documents that have been coming out for Tales of the Valiant and with their Black Flag system reference document. This system reference document, 138-page system reference document, is available for free online and is licensed under the Orc license. 
license, the new Orc license that came out from the OGL catastrophe of last year, bunch of different publishers together, mostly led by Paizo, came up with a new license that's independent of any publisher. So even though Paizo, I think, financed it through uh, a law firm known as Azora Law, who has worked with uh, other tabletop role-playing game companies, they put together the Orc license and uh, tail, uh, Black Flag uh, SRD is available under the Orc license. That really only matters to publishers, though. It doesn't really matter to us here, who are GMs that are that are making things. But one of the really neat bits of mechanics that came out with the Black Flag playtest and with the Tales of the Valiant playtest is their alternative system for inspiration. So if you're familiar with 5th edition D&D and 5e, 2014 5e, you know about inspiration. What's really interesting is if what I would recommend you do, because it's kind of a fun exercise, if, if you're thinking about inspiration, go read what the 2014 Player's Handbook has to say about inspiration, and then go read what the 2014 Dungeon Master's Guide has to say about inspiration. They are different it's very interesting that in the player's handbook it talks about you getting inspiration by using your character traits your flaws your bonds your ideals and that sort of thing and the dungeon master's guide says you can actually use it for all different kinds of things including not using it at all those rules are kind of cross purposes which i think is one of the reasons why there's so much question about exactly how inspiration is supposed to be doing what it's doing so some people have been trying some other things. And one of the neat ones is what Tales of the Valiant and what Black Flag has been doing, which is a system called Luck. Page 28 of the Black Flag system resource document. The whole rule set for Luck fits into a very small amount of space in this system reference document. It is a direct replacement for inspiration. So you are not intended to use inspiration and Luck together. The reason why I'm talking about it today is I've now replaced inspiration with Luck for almost since it came out. I was like, oh, this it's so easy to drop out inspiration and drop in Luck. And this gets that whole value of the modularity of 5e that I was able to replace inspiration with luck and I'm not looking back. It's so much easier to deal with. First of all, it's a system that the player gets to use on their side completely. I don't have to manage it at all as a GM, which is great because it's something else off my plate so that I can focus on the things that I need to focus on when I'm running a GM, when I'm running a game. Inspiration was not that way. I had to deal with inspiration. Now, my way of dealing with inspiration was everybody at the start of every session began with inspiration and they, that, they got it once per session. So you always had that reroll available to you once per session. Now, the 2024 version of D&D looks like they're messing around with inspiration. First, it was you got it on, if you rolled a 20. Then it was you got it if you rolled it on a 1. I don't know where they're going to end up on it. But frankly, I'm really happy with how the luck system works. And I was still happy with the idea that you got it at the beginning of the game and you could get it again. So the way the luck system works is that, again, it completely replaces inspiration. And instead of inspiration, you can actually have multiple luck points. We'll get into that but when you so you know the way it says i'm gonna i'm gonna read it because i think it's valuable to read this and it's also very short every pc has a special resource called luck that can be used to influence the results of any of your checks ability checks attack rolls or saves gaining luck points when you create a character you start with zero luck points you gain luck points in the following ways once per turn when you fail an attack roll or save gain one luck point 
The GM can award one luck point as a reward for clever idea, excellent role-playing, or pursuing an interesting rather than optimal choice. I really like that because that's one of the ways I was using inspiration. When when players would put their characters into heroic, dangerous situations that weren't like tactically optimal, I would often reward inspiration for that. I would also make a deal with them by saying, if you're willing to do this thing, I will give you a point of inspiration for doing it because it's cool. You want to drive people towards cool luck points and inspiration a great way to drive people towards doing what's cool instead of like hanging out in a doorway sneaking around uh, and fighting you're not going to get luck and you're not going to get luck or inspiration in my game if you're hiding around a doorway like i do when i'm playing Baldur's gate 3 so you award luck but so gms can still award luck points for anything they want to do the gm can award luck to a party for surviving difficult encounters or achieving their story goals so you can give you can you can give it out as any other kind of goal you all gain a luck point you guys did something so cool you all gain a luck point and you can really good in, in inspirational good improvisational tool to reward players right on the spot as, as luck points. And because you can carry more than one, you can reward it more often than you would reward inspiration where people would not get it if they, if they did it the other way. So that's really cool. But most of the time, the way they're going to get luck is by failing a check. And that is really cool because it's a benefit to them for n- not having a good time. Right. That when players, because if you have like five, six players around a table and they don't always get a lot of actions and then when they take an action, they fail it. It really sucks to not have anything. But if they fail it and they get this little momentum thing, this thing, yeah, you failed, but you get a point of luck. That really helps. It's been really, really beneficial. And I have seen it change the attitude of players, even though it's a small thing. I've seen it change the attitude of players when they know that they failed to check, but they get to get a luck point because they know that's one point benefit that they're going to have in the future. Losing luck points. You can have a maximum of five luck points at a time. If a PC has five luck points and would gain a sixth point, you must immediately roll a D4 and reset your luck points to the die result. So you cannot hoard these. You should not hoard these. You want to use them. Now, that's a little tricky bit here because I've seen players who are rolling on a roll realize they have five and say, well, I'm going to burn three of them and get advantage even though I succeeded just so I don't lose points or I'm going to expend a couple of points just to stay at like three or four. So it's a little gamey. You can still game this a little bit by burning extra points off to keep yourself high, even though you don't need them. It's also a potential possibility for the player to forget that they had luck and they aren't keeping track of it until they get that six point. And they're like, oh, this sucks. I should have been paying more attention. I lost it. But still, you roll a D4 and you get what you get. If you've already forgot you had them, then, you, you, then you're where you are. Spending luck points. You spend luck points to add to any D20 roll you make. For example, if you have four luck points and roll a 13 on the die, you can expend two luck points to make your result a 15, leaving you with two luck points for later. Alternatively, immediately after you make a check, attack, ability, or save, you can spend three luck points to re-roll a D20. In either case, you spend luck after you roll, but before the DM declares whether the roll succeeds or fails. Luck can't offset effects, can't offset the effects of a natural one or create a natural 20. So there's a couple tricky bits in here too. One of them is, does that stack with advantage? So if you have advantage on a check, can you roll? And then do you roll both dice or do you pick one of the dice to re-roll instead? When I had first thought of this, I thought that it replaced advantage, similar to the way inspiration does. That it, you cannot do this and have advantage on a check. If you already have advantage, you can't use... You could add points to it, 
the same way, but you can't re-roll an advantage. And that's probably a way that I would sort of house rule this is that it do- the re-roll doesn't stack with advantage because you get into this weird state of like, well, do you, do you get to roll advantage again? Or do you pick one of the dice that you're going to re-roll? How does that affect? Same with disadvantage. Like you could use this, you could use three points to offset disadvantage. You would not get to use this to offset a roll of disadvantage by re-rolling one of the, the lower dice. So that's one little tricky bit. The other tricky bit to it is it generally means that the players are going to know what the, what, the, what the result is going to be. In other words, you're not, you don't want to be a dick to somebody and say, oh, they rolled a 13 and they say, oh, I'm going to add two luck points to that. And you're like, are you going to add two? And they're like, yeah, you're like, you still miss. And now they burned points without knowing that they were going to succeed. I guess you could do that. But to me, that feels like you're already making them fail twice. They failed once when they rolled and missed, and then they fail again by adding points and then missing again. So when I've been playing this out, I've been basically telling them what the DC is, even if it's the armor class of a monster. So if they say, hey, I roll and I rolled a 13, is that going to hit? And I'll say, are you going to add any luck to that? And they're like, how much should I add? I'll say, you need to add two. And then they add two and then they hit. So maybe that's making this a little bit more powerful than the expectation is. But I, I think the alternative is that the, the, the value of having this as a way to make people happier with the game goes down if you essentially make them fail twice. I know it says that you, you spend luck after you roll, but before the DM declares whether a roll succeeds or fails, means that you shouldn't be telling them to DC. I feel like if you're going to use something like it really helps to tell them what the dc is so they know how many points to spend they're not wasting points it's not this sort of gambling sort of thing and that has worked well in the games that i've run so i've actually been using the luck system now in multiple 5e games three different 5e games that i'm running and have run use the luck system and my players love it across the board we're all very happy with it so it's a really neat system i would take a look at you know read it here you can find it in the black flag role-playing game document you can also find it in the tales of the valiant playtests that have been out i will link to it down in the show notes so you can see that see it there as well Uh, but it's such a simple idea and a simple system that it's a really neat way to drop it into the game it gives players another little thing that they can sort of deal with on their side that you really don't have to do anything with on the gm side which is why i like it so much there's a couple little tricky bits to manage but so far i've had not had any trouble managing those and i found it to work better than the inspiration mechanic that has been in the core of 5e so i really liked it i want to talk about it again really good example of another publisher who's putting out a modular piece of uh stuff that is compatible with 5e that any of the 5e games can drop into their system and replace another piece showing the modularity of the system and showing the wealth of information that exists for 5e overall in this entire hobby that means we don't have to depend on any one company in order for us to be happy with this game so please yeah check out the luck system from tales of valiant really cool Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, I put up a new Q&A thread. Any of the Sly Flourish patrons can ask a question, an RPG-related question there. I answer every question every Friday, and some of those questions come here to the show. Other ones become the catalysts of other articles or other videos that I do elsewhere. These are the first questions for 2024. 
Safasquatch says, I've reached the like apex where I've introduced the, the three main villain entities. The players know the three fronts are actively choosing between them when undertaking missions. How do you set up quests such that none feel like the correct choice when navigating fronts towards the end of the game? So this is really interesting. And there's, there's, a, there's a whole idea about how much pressure you put on the three fronts. And I had a situation that was very eye-opening for me. One of the players that I've been playing with, we realized yesterday, she was in my game yesterday, we realized we've been playing together for basically 20 years. And she brought up that when one of the games I was running, this was in the, it was not Rhyme of the Frostbane, it was the other Icewind Dale adventure that came out right between the fourth and fifth edition and we were using early fifth edition to run it i can't remember the name of the adventure it was an icewind dale based adventure and it had three fronts and i put the pressure on the fronts such that every time they were moving the needle forward on one of the three factions the other two were moving forward so when the characters were busy dealing with one faction the other two were growing and things were happening and in the middle of the campaign, she said, you know what? When you told me about this idea that there are these three different factions and that they're all moving along and we have to get involved in them, I thought that sounded really cool. And now that I'm in it, I feel like I'm losing ground all the time, right? Or I think she said, like, now that I'm in it, I hate it, right? And she hated it because she felt like no matter what choice she made, she was losing ground with the other two. What that told me is I was putting too much pressure on those factions that they were always moving forward so much that if the characters weren't involved and couldn't be involved, that those other factions were growing. So you can tune the dials on these by having some of the factions not moving as fast as everything else is going on. Maybe one of them is, or maybe neither of them, neither the other two are, but they're all just kind of moving in the background. And knowing how to keep that dial and keep the pressure back so that players feel like they're gaining ground. Not like, well, I'm pushing that one down, but the two other are growing and I push that one down. Now the other two grow that, that can be frustrating. So you want to be careful there. And I don't know if that's exactly, you're not really asking that though. You're saying like, how do you get past the feeling that there's a correct choice? So there's a couple of things to do. One is that sometimes in your game, they're just, there is a correct choice and don't try to hide it. Right? You, maybe they're the quest that they have, they only have one quest that's focused on one faction because they're the only ones currently at play. The other two are kind of moving in the background and there isn't really a quest for it. So clarifying exactly what are and aren't quests, that is a really valuable thing to do. The other thing is you can have a conversation with them. And I've had to have this conversation with players. I have to have it in my Shadow Dark game regularly, which is there isn't a right answer to these choices. You're going to make choices about what to do and the world will evolve based on the choices you make, but there isn't a right or wrong one. So you're not, it isn't you trying to figure out what's going on in my head about which the right one is. I'm reacting to you. You're not reacting to me. And you have, sometimes you have to tell that to the players directly. Like, let's talk about this game we're playing. And in this game, there are choices in front of your characters. And I am telling you that the choices that you have for these characters are, are there isn't one right answer. There are, it, the world is going to evolve based on the choices you make. But that doesn't mean there's one right answer. And I won't steer you down a path where there's a wrong answer unless you'll know that you're heading down something that is, that is different. So... You know, it isn't a matter of, you know, you're not just saying like, I'm just going to make up the whole game based on the choice that you make. It's that the world is going to evolve naturally based on the choices you make. 
and you 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 know you would have to make some pretty big bonehead choices for the things to go totally wrong so you can have that conversation with your players and then the other one is just recognizing that that the the villains that are moving forward all aren't all moving at the same pace at the same time which means the the villainous quests that are out there that the characters are getting involved in aren't happening at the same pace and therefore certain quests will be in front of the characters in one time and other quests will be in front of them another time based on what's going on in the story so instead of worrying too much about making sure that you're keeping three evenly distributed, evenly probable quests in front of the players all the time. Instead, you say, well, what's going on in the world? And based on what's going on in the world, what quests would be in front of the characters at any given time? And letting that go forward. So I hope that that answers that question. It's a really interesting one. This whole idea of like how to move your factions forward, how to move your villains forward, the villainous quest forward, the pacing that you do, and how that results in things that are sitting in front of the players is a really interesting bit of like advanced GM sort of stuff that's going on. So I hope I hope that that, that, that helped. Tim S. says, you recently had a video on lazy magic items, but how do you price items for players that you want to spend their gold at a magic item shop? My first thought was to base it off the potion of healing standard with consumable common items at 50 gold pieces. But how much more should permanent permanent or rare items cost? Tim, I've got a great resource for you. It is called the Level Up Advanced 5e Trials and Treasure Book. It is an excellent, excellent book. It is, in my opinion, far superior to the Dungeon Master's Guide for, for 5e, for running 5e games. And one of the things that it has in there are prices for magic items so if you ever need a question of like what's the price of a magic item the prices are in that book there's also rules for crafting and what the crafting costs and timelines are for making magic items based on different components it even talks about the components that the characters might have to acquire if they want to make their own magic item it's really really neat but also another trick that you can do with this is to figure you don't want to necessarily like have them go to Waterdeep and then in Waterdeep are are magic shops that are selling every magic item instead you want to have them have a small selection of magic items that they're able to sell you might make it even difficult for them to even get to the a point with a merchant where they can buy them like have to go on a quest themselves or have to prove themselves somehow or like hey you know we don't just sell magic items to anybody like you got to kind of prove yourself to us so it's not like all magic items are always available they're always rare so then how do you determine which magic items are available you can roll a random magic item list you can roll some treasure and say okay i'm going to roll a few times on the magic item item table maybe you pick one of the columns of your magic item table and you roll three times and see what magic items came up. And those are the three magic items that are available. And if they go away and come back, it's three other magic items that are available. So that way you're adding some interesting magic items that might not be optimal for the characters. Some of them might be, some of them might not be. And you know what the prices of those magic items are because they're in that book. So that's a a way to create sort of a magic item economy without letting things get so out of hand. The other nice thing is like, if you see one of those items, you go, Oh man, I do not want to drop one of those into my campaign. It's going to just wreck my campaign then you just don't put that one in right and you put in a different magic item instead you can also do the lazy magic items where you give them interesting names interesting backgrounds interesting features and you make those for sale but you can still use the level up advanced 5e amounts to kind of give you an idea of how much a magic item can sell for and then increase or decrease the price depending on how valuable you think that that item is it's a really good idea but check out the trials and treasure book for level up advanced 5e you can also go to a5e.tools and you can see magic items there and their listings there as well but you should buy the book Ben H says, I recently started a City of Arches campaign locally. We are about to have the first adventure, and I was considering two different ways to give them hooks for adventures after this one. The first is to leave seeds in the dungeon that they are currently questing in, i.e. they find a dead adventure with a map to some treasure, but I wanted three hooks so that it might feel too... might. I, but I wanted three hooks so that it might feel a bit too crowded in one dungeon. 
The other option after the adventure is to say during their downtime that they were approached by NPCs with or found things related to the three hooks in the city. I was wondering if you had a preference between the two techniques or a third technique I missed and any advice regarding either of them. So in the City of Arches book, this is a new version, the one that just came up in the past December on page five are using adventure hooks and it says like nearly every location npc in this book includes an adventure hook that you can use to draw your characters in you introduce these adventure hooks in lots of ways the following is a list of potential ways the characters might pick up on adventure hooks use a role in this list to inspire your own ideas so no there isn't you asked if i have a preference i don't have a preference i think both of the ones that you brought up are fine ways to do it npc approaches you and they have a quest or you find stuff on a dead adventure that leads to another quest but i think there's many more and then a third one that i throw out that's really easy is the job board you you go to Savage and Gams, which is the local kind of eatery, and they have like a bulletin board. And on the bulletin board, you could have a couple of different factions. Like, hey, I'm looking for my, my daughter's gone missing. The city watch has not been helpful. Can you help me find my daughter who went down into the lower sewers? Ah, okay. Right. But here's a bunch of other ways I'm going to read off. The characters pick up the job on a job board. Number one for me. NPC known to the characters recommends them. A local business provides a hook to the characters. A local political group brings the hook to the characters. The characters overhear a conversation discussing the hook. The NPC, the NPC seeks out the characters based on their reputation. A local job recruiter connects the characters and a job for a small fee. A mysterious letter or message directs the characters to a job opportunity. A guild or organization the characters are part of assigns them the job. A local temple requ requests assistance from the characters. Characters. A job is posted in the local newspaper or on a flyer. A character has a dream or vision guiding them to the job. A town crier announces a job opportunity in the streets. A retired adventurer passes the job to the characters. A magical familiar guides the characters to a job. A noble known to the characters seeks their assistance. The characters are offered a job after helping the, an NPC. The characters are introduced to the NPC through a family member or friend. A strange hooded or masked NPC gives, the con gives them the contact information. Local guards hire the characters as private investigators. So those are 20 different ways. But again, hopefully that list isn't like your end all be all of these but that was like oh but also you could do these so another way is think up 10 more what are 10 other ways that characters could get quests this is that list and this is that idea like this is a book built for lazy gms is here are ways that the characters could learn quests and that can definitely evolve as your game goes and i think it's more interesting for the characters to pick up quests for different things everything from overhearing a conversation to getting a dream report and to having a mysterious masked figure drop a note off and walk away i think lots and lots of really cool ways that you can do that Captain Eddie says, I'm starting a new D&D group next week. I'm old school. We play AD&D, second edition, and a bit of homebrew. My new players, three of them, are former DMs and play current editions. I'm a bit worried they're going to want to do all kinds of crazy game mechanics that I'm just not interested in. I am open to picking up a, new, a few new things, but wanted to keep it simple, boil down, and focus on role-playing. Any advice? Yes, I have a few pieces of advice. One is, remember that their time at the table is as important as your time at the table. They are taking time out of their life like you're taking time out of your life in order to run the game. So really behooves you, regardless of what system you're playing, how old school you are, and all of that, is have a conversation with them before the game begins to talk about what the game is, what the expectations are, and that kind of thing. And ask them if that's the kind of game that they want to play. That's that whole idea of having a session zero. And session zeros are valuable with any RPG that you're playing. But it's a good way before you start making characters, before you start getting the players thinking about the story or the characters they want to have, is have that adult conversation about the style of the game. Now, one tricky bit is when you say like you have second edition plus a bit of homebrew, from the player side of things, it, it really kind of sucks if they don't know what the rules are. 
If they can't understand what's going on because it's like, oh, well, the GM, it's kind of 2E, but there's all of these other things and I don't necessarily get them. One of the values of that, these, these modern RPGs is that typically like a game is like a game is like a game. They have an expectation of what the game is going to be like on their side and they know how it's going to work. When the GM is changing lots of things on the character side, that can get frustrating because they don't really know what they're doing or how they operate or how that plays out. That's one of the advantages of switching to an entirely different system. So I know you mentioned AD&D 2E and, and that's, that's totally cool. But one of the nice things about going to a game like Shadow Dark is that it's a completely different game. There's no expectation that there's some stuff connected to it. We don't have any special house rules for Shadow Dark. We're just running Shadow Dark. So there's no like, oh, well in 5E I was able to do X. And we say, well, that might be fine, but this isn't 5E. It's a totally separate game. So I would be careful about what those homebrew rules are on the player side, and I would make sure that they're clear about them. But one important thing is not to just bang on the table and tell them how it's going to be, but talk to them about the kind of game that they want and try to come to a good consensus of the style. But it is definitely like second edition D&D is not like fifth edition D&D. It's kind of similar in some ways, but it's not the, the power growth of characters in, in fifth edition is definitely higher. You don't have things. And then the question is like, what are you playing with like the complete books or not because second edition had the complete books and those totally changed characters so i think it's important to make sure that it's clear what your game is about how that's going to play and how that works and have that adult conversation sit down with them before the game begins talk about what this is talk about what the house rules are ask them questions don't just tell them things ask them how they feel about it try if you're worried about these kinds of things the crazy mechanics talk to them you explain to them that like hey this doesn't have all like it doesn't have subclasses but some, I mean, AD&D 2E also had crazy stuff. The, the things you could do with your spells, because the spell descriptions in 2E were not super tight, meant you could do lots of weird stuff with those spells. Let them do that weird stuff. And they'll see that, oh, this is actually more of a story-focused game than it is a heavy mechanics-focused game. So that would be my advice. Friends, I want to thank all of you for hanging out with me today while we talked about all things in tabletop RPGs. If you enjoyed this show and you want to get more stuff like this from me, the best way to do so is to sign up for the free Sly Flourish newsletter. It's absolutely free to sign up. All I need is your email address and you get a weekly RPG related email sent directly to your inbox that includes links to all of the other work that I do every week. You can also sign up for the Sly Flourish Patreon. It's a very low price. You get to join in on the Patreon Q&A, a dedicated Discord server, the City of Arches sourcebook, which you've seen, and a whole lot of other stuff, a lot of different tools, all kinds of tips to help you run all of your RPGs. And you can pick up any of my books, including The Lazy DM's Companion, Forge of Foes, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, and all of my various fantastic books on the Sly Flourish bookstore. All of the links for those are in the show notes. Thank you all so much. Have a great day and get out there and play an RPG.